Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and beloved people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and today we have an episode of POTS Practitioners, where we're going to discuss drug treatments for POTS with Dr. Jenna Hauck, who is a doctor of pharmacy and a POTS patient herself. Dr. Hauck kindly offered to help us review some of the main drugs used in POTS, how they work, side effects, all kinds of things that we've been wondering about. So Dr. Hauck, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So for starters, can we ask you to just share a little bit about your training and your work as a pharmacist? Sure. I have my doctorate in pharmacy or my PharmD. I've got this last year, actually last June, I graduated from St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York. And right now I'm just finishing up my first year of postgraduate training and my PGY1 pharmacy residency, which is a little different than a medical residency where this is actually after I already have my degree and I'm getting advanced training. So right now I'm finishing up that PGY-1 with VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, and I'll be pursuing my second year residency here as well. So you work with the Veterans Administration, that's what you mean by VA? Yes, exactly. So I work in our VA in Hudson Valley, which is comprised of two main hospitals and seven outpatient clinics. Okay, and I think you are pursuing a degree in pharmacy that's a little bit different than some, right? Like you're going to actually have the ability to prescribe treatments. Is that right? Something that a lot of people don't know about pharmacy is there's a lot of different directions you can go with it once you have your PharmD. So the typical pharmacist we think about works in, you know, a CVS or Walgreens and our retail pharmacies, and you see them when you pick up your medications every month. And where I'm going with my degree is I really want to be a clinical pharmacy practitioner. So the VA is really great and it allows us to operate under federal law and not the individual state laws. And pharmacists are treated just like mid-level providers. So just like a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. And right now in my residency and hopefully in my career after, I hope to stay with the VA. I see patients in our clinic and I treat primary care conditions like diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, COPD, things that are a little more chronic. Okay. Have you ever had a POTS patient? I have not yet, but I definitely, you know, once in a while I'll be like, hmm, if a patient's having some kind of symptoms, I always wonder in the back of my head, hmm, I wonder if it's POTS. But my patient population tends to be a little older and more male focused, so a little less likely to have POTS. Got it. Okay. So I know that you had mentioned to me when we were speaking before that you yourself have some familiarity with POTS. Are you able to share anything about your own journey around POTS? Sure. So my journey with POTS started about a year and a half ago, where I passed out about 24 hours after my second COVID vaccine. And ever since that time, I had typical POTS symptoms like tachycardia, feeling like I was going to pass out all the time, as well as the other lovely symptoms we all have grown to know with POTS. 
I did a lot of research since I have this medical background to try to figure out what was going on with me because providers just told me, oh, you're anxious and oh, you know, nothing's wrong with you. Your heart is fine. So I did a lot of research myself, as many of us do on the internet and really dug into things and I came across POTS. And I was like, wow, I really check all of these boxes. So I went and saw a cardiologist and told them that I thought I had POTS and I got referred to the right doctor who gave me the diagnosis. So I'm very grateful that my journey was much shorter than a lot of our POTS patients. But I would like to emphasize that I don't believe the COVID vaccine gave me POTS. I believe it was always there, just less noticeable in the background kind of my whole life. So I still recommend the COVID vaccine and other vaccines as well. I've given hundreds of them myself. So just want to emphasize for our listeners that definitely the COVID vaccine did not give me POTS, but it did bring out POTS. Like a lot of us have immune reactions to different infections or vaccines that tend to bring out POTS in us. Okay. So I'm really excited to have you review some of the specific POTS prescription medications for us. But before we get into those, do you have any sort of like general things we should know about the prescription drugs for POTS? Absolutely. I think there's a couple key things that we all need to keep in mind when we're talking about medications for POTS. The first being no medication is specifically indicated or FDA approved for the treatment of POTS. All the medications that we currently use are often used for symptomatic relief or are used what's called off-label. So this doesn't mean that they're not effective or can't be used to treat patients with POTS, but we don't have that FDA approval process that was taken for those medications, most of which have been around quite a while originally for other things. And I think many of us know from insurance battles that that is relevant sometimes because that means the insurance company can say that this is not medically necessary or whatnot. And so I know that some of the, the nonprofits are working hard to get us some FDA approved drugs. Definitely. As somebody who's worked in retail pharmacy for over five years before my career with the VA, I definitely have seen that unfortunate side effect of medications not having always being FDA approved. The second big thing I would recommend for people to keep in mind would be that most of the data we have for our medications is very limited to small studies, which makes it very difficult for providers to make strong conclusions on how well they work or how they may impact POTS patients. We know that we're just starting now to see more data and more studies come out about POTS in general. Many providers don't have any knowledge of it whatsoever. So all of the, the data we really have is usually case reports or very small studies from some of our providers that have been working with POTS long term to show how these medications really work and can benefit our POTS patients. Yeah, okay, so we're pioneers of a type <laughs> we never hoped to be. Okay, so let's review the medications commonly used for POTS. Let's start with the category of beta blockers. Which drugs are those and how do those work? Our beta blockers are by far the most common medications used for POTS. And this is really because they've been around for a long time and are generally relatively affordable because most of them are available generic. Generally, we see our providers recommend beta blockers first for POTS patients. Occasionally, we'll try a couple different ones and then move on to some of our other medications if those don't work. Our beta blockers include medications like atenolol, propranolol, metoprolol, among others. 
And it's important to note when we're talking about beta blockers, there's a couple different types. The first being selective beta blockers. These selective beta blockers work by blocking our beta-1 receptors and therefore mostly affect the heart and do not affect our air passages as much. Some common selective beta blockers include atenolol, metoprolol, nabivalol, and bisoprolol. I don't know how you say all of those so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Years of experience, trust me. And on the other hand, we have our non-selective beta blockers. These block both our beta-1 and our beta-2 receptors, so they affect our heart, blood vessels, and our air passages. Some common non-selective beta blockers include natalol, pindolol, among others. Some beta blockers, such as our carvedilol and labetabol, actually have alpha-1 blocking activity as well. So we see that they have a greater effect on our vasculature and are a little bit better at lowering our blood pressure than some of our other beta blockers. There's no general consensus out there in literature if selective or non-selective beta blockers are superior for treating POTS in particular. However, the wealth of evidence that we have is behind metoprolol and propranolol, so that's generally where we'll see providers go first. Overall, our class of beta blockers is going to help most with reducing heart rate in POTS. So is that because when you talk about those receptors, the beta-1 and the beta-2 receptors, is that because the drug goes to those receptors and does something there? Exactly. So whenever we're talking about where the drug is going, we generally see the effects that we do based on which receptors the drug goes to. But unfortunately, our body often has different receptors in different places. So just because we have beta receptors here in the heart, we might also have them in our lungs or in our bladder, other places throughout our body. So that's where we'll see some of the side effects actually come into play is because the drug is working off target at other receptors throughout our body. Ah, okay. So let's talk about that. Tell us about the potential side effects of the beta blockers. Sure. So the most prominent side effect we're going to see is going to be dizziness and hypotension or low blood pressure. And this can really complicate POTS because as in general, we are already generally pretty dizzy. And because we have that blood pressure lowering effect, if patients already have a lower blood pressure at normal, we might go too low and cause more dizziness or more hypotension. So it's a little bit of a cycle there. And this is why beta blockers don't work for everybody. And generally we try to avoid our beta blockers with that alpha one activity like carvedilol and labetalol if patients already have low blood pressure because that's gonna have a more effect on blood pressure than some of our selective beta blockers like atenolol or metoprolol. Another common side effect we see with our beta blockers is exercise intolerance. Now this is something that I feel like providers don't always talk about, but is definitely pretty prominent with our beta blockers. So. Because our beta blockers lower our heart rate, we know when we generally exercise, our heart rate's gonna go up because our muscles need more oxygen and the way our body gets more oxygen to our muscles is by increasing that heart rate so the blood is taking more oxygen to our muscles. If we take a medication like a beta blocker that's slowing down the heart rate, it doesn't let our heart rate get as high as it needs to be when we exercise, you might notice you're more fatigued during exercise or you can't exercise as much as you used to. So this is where, you know, you hear people say all the time, why does it seem like the drug to fix your problem also causes a bunch of side effects that give you that same problem? And I assume this is just because those are the side effects that catch people's attention. And I'm guessing there's not actually something going on to that effect, but people always say that. So can you just 
talk about that? Are, are, are side effects generally random or is there anything to this perception that it seems like sometimes a, a drug causes the same problems it's going to try to fix? Sure. So side effects are kind of a crapshoot, unfortunately. Anytime a side effect or effect of the drug is noted in a study, whether it be we think it's related to the drug or we don't think it's related to the drug, it's going to be reported as those adverse reactions or side effects of a medication. So just because a medication might cause something or have something listed as a side effect doesn't always mean that it's going to be a common side effect or something that patients normally experience. So it's a little hard to estimate the prevalence of different things, but certain literature can show us the percentage of when we see adverse reactions. You know, things might be more likely than others, but it's definitely, I think, a part of a little bit of both that because we're targeting the system of the body that's having this problem, we might also have these side effects related to that system of the body. But in the same time, we're already experiencing these things. We might be hypercritical of what's going on with that system of our body. So it's a little bit of both, unfortunately. Okay, so I just have one more question about side effects before sure. we go on. You mentioned that side effects are kind of a crapshoot. Is it kind of the case that a body is so complex that oftentimes you just don't know what's going to happen until it happens? And like, how often do you even know the mechanism of action for the side effects? Like, are side effects usually just kind of like these mysterious things you live with? Or how much are they actually understood generally? Sure. So unfortunately, I think it's very related to the medication itself and how much we know about it. Our drugs that have been around for a really long time, we have a lot of data to show things like how often we see side effects and how those might happen. Sometimes if a medication affects an area of the body that we really know a lot about, that can be great because we can kind of determine which those side effects might be happening. But sometimes, even with medications that we have FDA approved, the mechanism of action is truly unknown, which is a little scary. <laughs> but at the same time, if we don't even know how medication works, we just know it works, so they go with it. But I would think that the same is with side effects, that sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. And as far as side effects in general, I think it's important to keep in mind that everybody is very different. I myself am very sensitive to medications. So I encourage my doctors to go very slow with dose titrations and tend to be very hesitant about starting new things because I know my body is very overdramatic, as many of us are. Other people take 15 to 20 medications, don't have a single problem, and they just keep rolling about their day. So the body is a very strange thing, and I don't think we can ever begin to know why everything happens, unfortunately. Okay, so that's not surprising. So you had been talking about exercise intolerance as yes. one of the common side effects. Do you have any tips for overcoming that in people who really need their beta blockers? Absolutely. So exercise, as we know, is a very common recommendation from our providers for helping our POTS get better, which it can be very frustrating because we go to exercise, we feel like crap, and both the POTS itself and our medications are working against us kind of in that scenario. So something that I would definitely recommend for patients, regardless of if you take a beta blocker or not, is to spend extra time warming up and cooling down. Those kind of transition periods can be very important for us because we have already something going wrong with our cardiovascular system. And because we're going to rev that up, if we just start going and running and going full speed ahead, we're not going to feel good. We're not going to be able to do that very often. But if we go slow, do some stretching, slowly increase our pace, 
and then take that time to cool down as well, we'll see the best benefit both for how we're feeling and being actually able to exercise. Another recommendation that I see often is to reduce the intensity of your workout, but increase your duration. So instead of going for you know a 20 minute run, if you do a 30 or 35 minute jog or 40 minute walk, whatever you can handle. And I think providers sometimes are a little insensitive to the fact that some of us really can't exercise well, but learning different options out there for you. YouTube is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to different abilities exercising. They have ones without jumping or bending. They have specifically restorative yoga that's less positional changes for patients that may allow you to do something and still feel like you're doing something and not be so frustrated. That's really good advice. Now, I know there's a couple other side effects of beta blockers because as a nutritionist, I hear about the weight gain all the time. <laughs> is that a real thing? Unfortunately, yes. Weight gain is a big problem for many of our patients. And part of that relates a little bit to our exercise intolerance too. Maybe if we're not able to be as active as we once were, and now we take this medication that has the potential for weight gain, those things are generally not a good combination. So I myself have noticed this. They say that the average weight gain is 2.6 pounds with taking a beta blocker. Now everybody's very different. Some people might not gain any weight, they might lose weight. Some people gain much more than that. I myself can tell you in a year, since not changing any diet or any kind of other things in my life, I've gained 15 pounds. And of course, I can't 100% say it's the Italian, but at the same time, that's really only the major thing that's changed in my life. I've spoke to my provider about this as well, because you know, for myself and for other patients, I wanna have those answers. And there is some evidence to suggest that it may decrease our metabolism. So there might actually be some science behind that weight gain and not just, you know, oh, random weight gain. So unfortunately, it is a very real side effect for many patients. And just trying to be conscious about that. We know we stress as much exercise as you can, whatever you can do, and really watching diet, even if it's just simply counting your calories to make sure you're not having sneaky calories and going way over the recommended limits. I know it can be a little hard trying to eat healthy with also maintaining the salt intake that's recommended for our diets. So just trying to be cognizant of what we're, what we're eating. You know, and then there's also taste bud ping pong. When you eat really salty foods, it then can make you crave sweet foods, which then can make you crave more salt. And so I've always thought that might be another challenge that POTS patients have when it comes to eating healthy. I think I have a new excuse for my constant sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for some of those people, they can reduce their salt intake on their food and instead do a salt pill so that their taste buds are not actually touching so much of it. Sure. But again, a lot of people don't tolerate the salt pills. So, you know, everything's so complex and challenging. I'm sure I don't have to tell you. <laughs> okay. So is that all for side effects? There is one other thing I did want to mention about beta blockers, and you may see somewhere out there that it could worsen asthma or COPD or cause something called bronchospasm. This is more with our non-selective beta blockers. As we said before, it can affect some of those beta receptors that we have in our lungs. So it's important that if you do have asthma or COPD to talk to your doctor about which beta blocker, if you are thinking of going down that route, would be best for you. 
I can say personally, I do have asthma and my atenolol that I take does not affect my asthma. It is a selective beta blocker and everybody's a little different. Some patients might notice that side effect more than others, but it's important to have a treatment plan in place if you do have asthma or COPD. Yeah, that sounds important. Okay, so it sounds like the beta blockers are really effective at slowing down the heart rate. And so that's why they're worth it to a lot of people, despite these potential side effects, but that the side effects definitely don't happen to everybody. Do you have a sense, just like a gut feeling of how common the side effects are with beta blockers? I would say that most patients will experience some kind of side effect, especially that dizziness and hypotension. We see kind of that beginning transition. Anytime you're taking a medication that can potentially lower your blood pressure, even just a little bit, your body's got to get used to that new lower blood pressure. So especially at first, people might be a little more sensitive to that dizziness or hypotension, but it may get better as time goes on. Okay, great. Anything else to say about those or should we move on to mitodrine? I think that's about it. Okay, mitodrine is one that I have taken and my main memory of it was the scalp tingling on the first day. But can you talk to us about that? What is mitodrine about? Sure. So mitodrine forms an active metabolite, which means that it forms another form that the body has to activate first before it can start to work. And this active metabolite is called desglymitodrine which is actually an alpha-1 agonist. So this agent, once it's activated in our body, increases our arteriolar and venous tone, which increases our blood pressure. So you'll hear it called a vasoconstrictor because it really is gonna help constrict those blood vessels and help to increase our blood pressure. So overall, that's what we see the biggest effect with for our POS patients, especially of us that have lower blood pressure to begin with. Uh, mitodrine can be very helpful in increasing that blood pressure and help to reduce some of that blood pooling because our arteries and veins are nice and constricted. Does it pretty much do it all over the whole body, as far as you know? It should, in theory, <laughs> mm -hmm. work all over our body because we do have those alpha-1 receptors on our vasculature. So anywhere that we have those, hypothetically, mitodrine should bind and cause that constriction. Okay, great. Uh, what else should we know about mitodrine? So something that can be a little frustrating with mitodrine is it is dosed three times a day, which can be a burden to some patients, especially if you have a busy work or school life. Taking a medication three times a day can be a lot to remember. So that's something to keep in mind for, for mitodrine. And I did find a good study on mitodrine, which was a non-blinded trial of 53 adolescents that had POTS they used mitodrine 2.5 milligrams once a day, and it was found to be superior to both metoprolol and increased salt and water intake with 89% efficacy in that three to six months of follow-up that they followed patients for. So we're using a very small dose, and we did find that it was more effective than our beta blocker metoprolol that they looked at specifically and just kind of our lifestyle of salt and water intake. So that's interesting. And would you always only take one or the other, or would you sometimes do both drugs at the same time? I mean, I think you could do salt water and mitodrine at the same time, because I know I've Absolutely. been told to do that. Are the beta blockers versus mitodrine a one or the other, or could you do both? I think theoretically you could use both. I haven't encountered that in any of my kind of, you know, talking to other POTS patients or with, you know, talking with my own providers. But I would think that if somebody needed help with that increased blood pressure, as well as the lowering of the heart rate, they both could kind of work in conjunction. 
Okay, great. And I also, I just have to laugh because when you had mentioned that one downside of mitodrine is that taking it three times a day might be a burden. What goes through my head, and I'm guessing a lot of our listeners too, is like, should you be so lucky that that's the biggest burden of your drugs, right? (laughs) (laughs) No side effects, nothing scary happens, they all work, but you've got to take them three times a day. (laughs) Exactly. And it's, I think it's a little different for patients that have like POTS with that kind of chronic daily symptoms that we'd be probably a little more motivated to take our medications to feel better than the typical patient. For example, if we have the opposite problem and we just have hypertension or high blood pressure, eh, we don't really feel it. You know, it's kind of silent. So we might not be as good as taking a three times a day medication. Got it. Right, right. Okay. So how about any potential side effects of mitodrine? Sure. So this is something I find fascinating about mitodrine. It's one of the only medications that I've heard that causes these paresthesias or piloerection, which means really fancy term for saying tingling, numbness, and goosebumps. So a lot of patients will report that they get that kind of goosebump, tingly feeling on the scalp, which is kind of strange. (laughs) I would definitely have to say it's not a common side effect of most medications. And um, some patients, you know, live with it and it doesn't really bother them, but some patients really are bothered by it. And that's why they end up coming off of the mitodrine. Oh, okay. When I had that, I only had it for the first couple days. And I thought maybe it was just because my brain was getting more blood and more circulation than it had in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I think that, you know, we, we don't really have an answer for why that happens, but I'd be curious to see if they ever do figure out why mitodrine causes that. Okay, interesting. What else? So common other side effects with mitodrine are bradycardia or slow heart rate, which for a lot of our POTS patients is a good thing. So that's something to keep in mind, as well as hypertension or high blood pressure. They especially talk about supine hypertension, which is really that kind of sitting up hypertension. It's seen more in our patients with neurogenic orthostatic hypotension than in our POTS patients specifically. But it is something to keep in mind that we don't want your blood pressure getting too high just because of the mitodrine. Okay, so that one makes sense to me because it's a vasoconstrictor. It's trying to increase your blood pressure. So it sounds like this is sometimes you might overshoot. Exactly. Some people are a lot more sensitive to medications, as we talked about earlier. So some patients might just increase the blood pressure just enough. But for some patients, it might be a little too much. Okay, great. Anything else about mitodrine or shall we move on to a new drug? I think that's about it. Okay, what's the next one? I think the next drug we'll talk about is Ivabardine or Corlinor. So this medication is very unique in the fact that it selectively and specifically inhibits hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide gated channels, which is a super crazy term for just saying our F channels which has the sinoatrial node of the cardiac tissue. This disrupts the ion current flow, prolonging diastolic polarization, which slows our firing from the sinoatrial node and ultimately reduces heart rate. So this is a fancy way of saying that every time our heart beats, there has to be an electrical current that goes through our heart to make that heart beat. So essentially, the Ivabardine is going to slow that depolarization or that electrical current that's going to cause that heartbeat to happen. So when we slow that down, we also have a slowing of the heart rate. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Cause I have to admit, as soon as you got to F channels, I was like, <laughs> oh boy, I'm not going to understand any of this. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it's about working with the electrical signals and using those to slow down the heart rate. 
Exactly. All right. So does that have any potential side effects? I have not come across the medication to not have potential side effects at this oh, point in my career. So <laughs> of course we're going to have side effects. Some common ones are going to be bradycardia or slow heart rate, which we would expect with any medication that's going to potentially slow our heart rate. Uh, we also see that hypertension as well that we sometimes see with the mitogen and palpitations. This is generally because anytime we're messing with the current of our heart, that electrical current, there's a potential for things to go wrong. So you might notice that you have palpitations or even put yourself at risk for atrial fibrillation, which is a type of arrhythmia. Okay, so that sounds a little scary, but is that rare, hopefully? Not a super common side effect of these medications, but anytime we're messing with electrical currents or anything like that, there's always that potential for things to go wrong. So luckily, many of us have heart rate monitors that have the capability for detecting AFib, and we're following up with our providers frequently enough that you know they're going to be checking things like that. I would just encourage any patients that take Ivabradine or Quinar, if you ever have any kind of funny feelings with your heart that it feels like it's beating funny, you're having pain that you don't normally have or palpitations that you don't normally have, I would just recommend you go get checked out because these things are a potential, although not common. Okay, great. Anything more about that one or should we move on to a new drug? The thing I want to emphasize with Ivabradine or Corlinor is it's difficult to obtain, as many of us know. It's currently only a brand product in the United States, which means that it's a very expensive product to get in the United States. Many of us have insurance that doesn't want to cover Corlinor, especially if we haven't tried a decent amount of other medications first. I would like to let patients know that the Corlinor website does have a coupon program that some patients may qualify for based on your insurance. So if you're having trouble either obtaining or affording your Corlinor, check that out as a resource and see if that might be helpful for you. Great tip. Okay, perfect. All right, what's the next drug? The next drug we'll talk about is flugicortisone or Florinef. So this medication works a little differently than the other medications we've talked about so far, and it actually promotes increased reabsorption of sodium and loss of potassium from our renal distal tubules. So in our kidneys, it's going to work to increase the amount of salt we retain. And where salt goes, water goes. So we see when we're keeping more salt in our body, we're also increasing that blood volume because we have more water that's going to be absorbed as well. So it helps us to increase our blood pressure because we have more blood volume than we had before. So this is the one that I believe that works just like licorice, which is why you also need to be kind of careful with licorice and licorice tea and licorice candies and things like that sometimes. Exactly. You do too much. Okay. I think this is a really common one that people are familiar with, but tell us about any potential side effects. Sure. So the, a big thing to watch out for when you're taking fluid or cortisone is any kind of swelling or edema. Essentially means we have fluid retention. You might notice that in your legs or your arms. So if you notice that, you know, maybe you're looking a little more puffy than normal in your arms and legs, or you can feel like you have extra fluid or anything like that accumulating, always want to go get checked out. You may just need a diuretic or something to help you kind of get rid of that extra fluid. Some other things that are common would be because we are getting rid of more potassium, we might notice we have low potassium or hypokalemia. And we also see low magnesium or hypomagnesemia, which I know a lot of POTS patients will complain of muscle cramps and things like that. 
if you're taking fludocortisone and you're having muscle cramps or any kind of twitching or anything like that, you may have low magnesium. And I would recommend having your doctor check that out to see if you need supplementation. And while you wait, you could try just having a nice spinach salad or something with a bunch of leafy greens and see if that magically makes you feel better. Because I can't tell you how often I hear that. <laughs> exactly. And I don't take fludocortisone, but I can tell you I had this happen to me of where I was all of a sudden having these muscle twitches and I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I haven't done anything different lately. And then I'm like, I wonder if my magnesium is low. And sure enough, little supplementation and I feel so much better. So <laughs> easy fix. Yeah. Yay. We like easy fixes. <laughs> they don't come along that often. No. Okay. What else? <laughs> Something that patients may also notice is some weight gain. As we talked about with our beta blockers, we also see that pretty common with fludocortisone. This might be a little bit twofold. The first is because we're going to be accumulating more water. So we're going to have more volume which we might notice that weight gain just from simply having more water in our body. The other hand of this is that fludrocortisone is considered a type of steroid. So with long-term use, steroids can cause things like weight gain. So that, you know, potentially could be partially related to that as well. So as always, you know, just keep an eye on your weight, weighing yourself every once in a while to make sure you're not gaining too much weight too quickly because that might be cause for seeing the doctor. Some other common effects just long-term effects of steroids in general to keep an eye out for are elevated blood pressure, which most of our patients with low blood pressure, not too much of a bad thing, but if you do have a history of high blood pressure, it's something to look out for, as well as worsening of blood sugar. If patients are diabetics, we know that steroids in long-term can increase the sugars. So if you're having a trouble controlling your blood sugar and you take fludrocortisone long-term, that might be coming into play there as well as some patients notice a psychiatric or mental health disturbances, not common at all, but steroids do have that potential, as well as immune suppression and many more. Fortunately, steroids in general are not the greatest medications to take long-term, but many of us do need to take them so that we can have a normal life. So it's a lot of that risk versus benefit. As long as we continually monitor things like our blood sugar, cholesterol, and our blood pressure, we generally can take steroids just fine. So when I take steroids, I think I have some psychiatric disturbance, which really freaks me out. And I've never even had to be on that high of a dose. But my big memory, I lived in Alaska at the time because I was so heat intolerant. And the funny thing was, I got like almost, almost like I wanted somebody to try to break into my house because I wanted to beat someone up or like I was, I would hike and normally in Alaska, you have to be very careful of bears. And I felt like, bring it on. I could beat up a bear. And I realized how irrational that was. And so luckily I recognized that I was having psychiatric disturbances on steroids and I got off of them. But do we have any idea why on earth that happens? Because that was amazing to me that on the one hand, my inflammation went away and you know, I was the least inflamed I've ever been. And so clearly it was working amazing. And I thought low inflammation might, if anything, help my brain be healthier, but I was a mess. Do you have any idea what goes on to cause that? So they do have some idea of what comes into play there. And part of it is the steroid itself. It can be very stimulating to patients. I know myself, if I've had to take prednisone for a different respiratory infections in the past and things like that, I feel very hyper. I talk a mile a minute 
and I already talk very fast. So I, I have strict recollections of patients when I was counseling them in the pharmacy. When I used to work in retail, they would just look at me like, what is this lady saying? Because I would just be talking so quickly. I was like, please just tell me if you need me to repeat because I recognize that I'm talking really fast. But it's a lot of things that come into play there. Most of that is going to be the steroid itself, kind of having that stimulating or activating effects in the brain. And everybody just tolerates that a little bit differently. Okay, interesting. So that explains why I didn't sleep for a few nights. Definitely. And got a lot of cleaning done all night long. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big one. And anytime you take steroids for any reason, not so much taking a normal dose of fludrocortisone, but more if you're taking like a high dose steroid to help you for, you know, whatever reason, is trying to take it earlier in the day as possible because it is very activating and will keep you up at night. Okay, so you're making a good point that I was kind of talking about my experience with just a short term course of a much higher dose of steroids for kind of an acute problem. And I'm assuming that something like fludrocortisone is taken at a much lower dose when it's done every day. Is that right? So steroids, when we're talking about doses and things like that, we need to consider things like potency. So fludrocortisone is a very potent medication that it's dosed very low compared to some of our other medications. But when we talk about equivalencies and things, that's when things get a little more complicated. But generally, taking chronic steroids is going to be at a much lower dose than if you were to need it acutely for, you know, an infection or inflammation or something like that. Okay, great. So are there any other potential side effects with fludrocortisone? There is one very rare thing that I think is worth mentioning. Anytime you're taking a medication, I believe that you should be fully informed of all the potential serious things that could go wrong, even if it is the 0.1% of patients and that there is a risk of increased risk of heart failure with fludrocortisone. And we generally don't recommend it in patients that have heart failure existing, but it is something to keep in mind. But as I've said before, our POTS patients are generally going to be pretty closely monitored in their healthcare system. So as long as you're following with the doctor, you're getting your routine physicals and making sure you have that constant communication if anything starts to you know, go a little wonky, I would not have any fear of taking fludrocortisone just because of that risk. Okay, great. And I know that we could go on with more and more rarely used drugs in POTS, but I think we might have a part two if we could trouble you again, because you have so much wonderful information, but maybe we could now talk a little bit more generally. Do you have recommendations for POTS patients just trying to find drugs that help, like in general? Sure. So some general keys for any kind of medication treatment, even not related to POTS, is we usually go very slow and start very low on dose. And that's something I always recommend in less of an acute scenario. Of course, we may need to do things a little bit differently. But for general treatment, we want to start on a low dose and titrate slowly to ensure that it's tolerated. Generally, we can eliminate a lot of those common side effects if we just go slow enough when we're increasing the dose. That's something that I always recommend and always recommend patients advocating for. Sometimes providers are angsty and they just want to get up to that dose that's recommended, but we don't always tolerate medications the same. I'm very, very sensitive myself. And I even started cutting my lowest dose of atenol in half when I started it because I wanted to make sure that I could go very slowly on that and make sure that I tolerated it well. So that's something I definitely recommend advocating for yourself for slow titrations of doses. Another common thing that I would 
emphasize that's important, especially for POTS patients, is be patient. I know many of us wait many years for a diagnosis, so once we get there, it can be very frustrating to have to wait more. But you may not experience immediate results where when you start a new medication, you might feel strange or weird at first um, because our body has to get used to that new medication. So we find that sticking with that medication, being consistent with taking the medication, that a lot of those side effects that might present at the beginning of treatment will eventually fade or go away as the longer we take it. Can I ask, like, how long are you talking? Are you, when you say be patient, do you mean like a week, a month, six months? So everybody's going to be very different. And it's also going to depend on how fast we're increasing dose and other kind of factors that could be coming into play. I would say at a minimum, the first one to two weeks of taking any medication, the body needs to get used to that. So once we get past that kind of two-week mark, you should notice some improvement if it's a medication-related thing. Some patients might have a side effect that just doesn't go away, and at that point, maybe we consider trying something else or going lower on dose and going a little bit more slowly. But as I said, everybody's very different. And if you develop any new side effects, it never hurts to check with your provider just to make sure that, you know, this is expected and what they think would be the best course of action for dealing with that side effect. That's great. And kind of on a related note, I've heard the good advice when you're changing medications to maybe keep a symptom journal for a few days before you change. And then for that two weeks or however long you're changing it, because I didn't realize this until I did it myself, but when you start to feel better, it's really easy to forget like when you no longer have that headache, for example. If you don't write it down, it's easy to say, you know, oh yeah, that's right. I was having headaches daily and now I don't. It can sometimes be, be useful because things aren't, don't necessarily change dramatically. Exactly. Symptom journals in general tend to be one of the most valuable tools that we can have in healthcare because your providers can't be home with you every single day. But if we write down things like our blood pressure or our symptoms each day, maybe we can correlate things like we ate this food all of these days that I felt this way, or, you know, other things that happened because the weather was rainy or, you know, some other random thing that might be coming into play can really help our providers better treat us when it comes to medications and with our conditions. Okay, excellent. What else? I think my my final point as far as generalized medication treatment would be to just come to the realization that a lot of trial and error has to happen. Treatment of any kind of chronic disease is going to be a lot of up and down. It's never going to be a straight line. We're never going to get all of a sudden better magically just because we start one medication. It's a lot that's coming into the fact that what is going on in our body. We know that dysautonomia in general is a very complex thing and affects just about every system in our body. So we can't expect that the first drug we try is going to be a miracle drug and everything's just going to get better. So no one answer is going to work for everybody. Trial and error things that work for you. Come into a medication, try it. If it doesn't work for you, know that there's plenty of other medications out there, even though there's none indicated for POTS that we can still try to hopefully make you feel better. Yeah, that's really good advice. And the way I am hearing that is unfortunately kind of lower your expectations. I think when a lot of us are new to a chronic illness, we think, oh, okay, the way it works is they diagnose you, then they give you a medicine, and then you feel better, then you're done. And after you've had chronic illness for a while, you realize that's not how it works. A hundred percent. Many of us wait years just to get to the diagnosis part and finally get that medicine. And we, this is, we think this is the answer we've been waiting these years for. And then it's just such a disappointment. 
But I really think, unfortunately, lowering our expectations a little bit and knowing that even if a medication works and we're on it for years, all of a sudden it can stop working and or maybe not work as well as it used to. So can I stop you there? I would just like you to say that again, because for anybody who's maybe dozing off, I want them to hear that again, because I think that is a key place where we think we're going nuts or where we don't necessarily get believed. And so anyway, can you just say that again? Exactly. With any treatment, not just POTS, we can be on a medication chronically for months or years, even longer. And all of a sudden, our medication can stop working as well or stop working at all. And it can really put us kind of a stop dead in our tracks because what's going on? This medication's worked for so long. Why all of a sudden is it not working anymore? And it's something that we need to be cognizant is a possibility. So having those kind of tools in our tool belt for when those times get bad, not just forgetting that we have POTS because it's been good for so long. I know it's kind of hard. And then we have a bad day and we're like, oh boy, you know, I forgot I had POTS for a little bit there. I pushed it a little too hard and now I'm having a bad day. <laughs> right. So what I hear you saying is that it's not necessarily that the patient did something wrong. It can just happen. Exactly. The body is a really wonky thing. I've heard many doctors say that. We only know a minuscule amount of our body. And unfortunately, we have medications that can help us here and there and help us along the way. And we do these things like increasing salt and drinking a ton of water. And even then, taking our medications as directed, even then we can still have this happen, which is horrible and sad. And we never want it to happen, but it is a possibility and something we have to be prepared for. That's why we like having a pharmacy expert who has POTS herself. <laughs> so thank you for kind of vouching for that. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I, I never thought I would be in this position, but I feel so grateful in the fact that I can take all that I know and help other people hopefully get to their diagnosis and their right treatment just a little bit sooner like I did. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any last tips? fellow POTS patients? Sure. So some tips from a pharmacist in general. Anytime you're using a pharmacy, I recommend you use one pharmacy, whether that's use one chain of pharmacy. If you go to all Rite Aids, they should be able to see your prescriptions from one to another in your profile. But when we go to different pharmacies for one thing or the next thing, then that pharmacist is not going to have your complete medication profile. They're not going to know all the medications you take, the herbal supplements you take, any kind of other things that may come into effect. So we really aren't going to know if your medications interact if we don't have that full picture. So if you do have to use another pharmacy, I would recommend having a medication list even just typed up on your computer so you can print it out every time you need to use a new pharmacy and bring them that list. Include things like the supplements you take and the herbals and the over-the-counter stuff because even though it's available to purchase, you know, without any kind of advising, it still can interact with our prescription medications. And in order to have that safe medication therapy, we need to really make sure we have somebody safeguarding you, which is really our job as pharmacists. Great. Another important point I would say is totally take advantage of your pharmacist. We are a wealth of knowledge. Many of us at this point, it's a requirement to have a doctorate degree. A while ago, it was able to be a bachelor's, but even then, those pharmacists have had years of experience under their belts at this point in time. And we really are just a resource for you. You can stop into your pharmacy anytime they're open or give us a call, and we're available. You don't have to wait months to get into our office. You don't have to pay a copay to see us. And we're able to help you if you have any kind of medication questions 
or even just generalized advice when it comes to medications or therapy. We're really here to help and we, we love when patients come and ask us things and we can actually feel like we make a difference once in a while. It feels great to be able to help our patients. That's a great tip. I have to say, I only recently learned this myself, but I've been so pleasantly surprised by how knowledgeable and how friendly and how helpful my pharmacist has been. And especially because doctors are so busy. I mean, I almost have to laugh. Like my doctor, I'm lucky if I get eight minutes. The last time I spoke to my doctor, I actually timed it because I was just curious um, <laughs> because he will walk out the door mid-sentence if you take too long. And the pharmacist, I guess, is not under quite a, a time pressure, it seemed like at least. And I got so much wonderful information and I thought, oh, I can't believe I waited this long to realize this. Yeah, we really are under that great obligation that our work is very computer-based and you know, we're able to take a pause in our work and, and help a patient if they need it. Even if it's something as simple as recommending an over-the-counter supplement, and we're really a great resource to help make sure that you're picking something safe for your cold or your cough. And we're, we love to help our patients. That's really what most of us went to pharmacy school for is, is to help people. Awesome. Excellent. Okay. Anything else? And my last parting wisdom as a pharmacist and a POTS patient is to don't be afraid to use a pillbox. I know it's really hard as most of us are young women to not feel like we're 80 years old buying a pillbox, even though we're in our 20s or even younger sometimes. And this is something I struggled with at first. I definitely was resisting. I did not want to have a pillbox. I was not one of my old patients that I help and tell to get a pillbox. But I kept finding myself, you know, struggling to remember, did I take my pills because of that brain fog? I would be panicking halfway through the day. Oh my God, did I take my atenolol in the morning? And then because I'm panicking, my heart rate's going up. So I'm thinking I didn't take my atenolol. So I'd end up in that cycle of panic and just hating the fact that my brain can't remember taking something a couple hours ago. So I finally broke down and got a pillbox and it's been a godsend because I can either look or have somebody at home, look, can you just check my Monday morning slot and make sure I took my pill and that way my brain can focus on the rest of my day. Right, right. Yeah. Who needs that stress? <laughs> we don't need any more stress. That's for sure. <laughs> well, Dr. Hauk, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information with us today. We really appreciate your taking the time to review it all. And it's so nice to hear it from a fellow POTS patient. So can we maybe ask you to come back sometime and give us a part two? Absolutely. I would love to. There's so many questions about other medications that our POTS patients are normally taking, you know, maybe not even just for the POTS, but related conditions or questions they have about different things out there that I definitely would be willing to answer anytime. Awesome. Thanks a million. All right, listeners, that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone, and please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax-deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.